Well, thank you, Nicole, for your testimony. Um, praise God for you. I have a special place in my heart for uh, collegians and college ministry. That's when God saved me when I was 19 years old, after my freshman year in college. And um, used to see uh, young men and women grow in the faith. Um, but it was my heart, and I'm sure Marcus, Pastor Marcus shared in all of you. And we just continue to pray for CCF and uh, free food, um, Jew you <laughs> to Christ, um, and may uh, 25 cents hot dogs and soda drinks this Thursday uh, draw many collegians to lend their ears to the gospel, and may God call them to the Holy Spirit uh, to salvation. Also, it is uh, we, we chose April to be our missions month. Next month is um, uh, our first time ever sending a longer-term missionaries to uh, a foreign field, and Dale and Joan. And when we went through John 12, I shared with all of you that God desires that His glory be exalted, His name be raised through all the world. That's why Christ came and He died. And that must be our mission in life as well. That we must not be satisfied um, to uh, proclaim the gospel here in Southern California. It must be global because our God is a missionary God. When Hudson Taylor came back and talked to the believers in England, and um, he, he told them, we must go into the inner parts of China because there are people there perishing without the gospel. <clears throat> they told Hudson Taylor it's impossible we're barely holding on to the coastal areas of the gospel. We don't have enough manpower. We don't have enough workers. We don't have enough money Go into, uh, holding on to the co- coastal areas, let alone the inner parts. It's uh, an impossible uh, request that you're asking of us. Hudson Taylor said, no. It's not an option for us to evangelize the lost. It's a mandate of Christ. And he pressed on and he went to the inner parts and proclaimed Christ. And one of his first converts asked him, um, uh, if you had the gospel for so many hundreds of years, what took you so long to get to us? And he had no answer. And so we are still delayed. We are still late in getting the gospel out. And so may we continue to press on forward to preach and deliver this message of God's love to all creation. And we're taking a small baby step with um, Dale and Joan. I haven't shared um, maybe six months ago that if in three to five years that no missionaries go off in Cornerstone, then uh, you know we would go, um, my wife and I and our children, and we're holding uh, fast to that commitment. And so <clears throat> if no one goes, God's telling us we're not effective in ministry here. If we can't shepherd our people, teach our people to cherish Christ, more than uh, life here in America, and so that we would consider that as a way of God guiding us to go. So if you want us to go, then you stay. If you want us to stay, you guys go. Your going allows us to continue to stay and minister here at Cornerstone. Well, um, John 15, we're still in the Gospel of John. We will finish this Gospel sometime this this decade, I don't know, this year, next year, we will finish this gospel until Christ, unless Christ returns or I perish, we will finish. If I perish, Marcus will continue it on, Jason and Joe and all you guys. 
No problems there. Well, abiding in Christ, friendship with Jesus Christ, John 15, verses 12 through 17. Uh, I believe the outline is in your bulletins. And just a brief review. Our Lord gives His uh, singular, clear command, precept to His friends. The command is found in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's a love one another sandwich because down in verse 17 he says it again. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Christ desires no confusion, no misunderstanding. He makes it explicitly clear twice in one passage, verses 12 and 17, that this is his commandment. And it is a new commandment. The old commandment was love one another as you love yourself. And the, the, the standard was You need to love others to the degree you love yourself. And Christ says, I give you a new commandment. Love one another just as I have loved you. And Christ points to Himself and He sets the standard. And He says in verse 13, Greater love is no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. And He's talking about Himself. The greatest gift that I can give to you is my life. And He demonstrated that by going to the cross. And we would agree with that, wouldn't we? If a friend gave us a watch, we would say, wow, what a gift. If a friend gave us a computer, a brand new Sony Vio laptop computer, wow, that's too much. If someone bought us a Nissan Sentra, you know, why not a Maxima? But still, hey, you know, we would say, wow, a Sentra, that's a great gift. Someone gave us a three-bedroom house. We would say, that's too much. But when someone gives his life for us, they can't give anything more. There is not a amount of money that can exceed the giving of a person's life. And Christ said here, greater love has no one than this, that someone would give his life for his friends. And that's what Christ did. Christ laid down his life for us. First John 3.16 And John says, Therefore we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Our Lord set a high bar in terms of this sacrificial, selfless love, limitless love. He didn't put a limit and say, well, I'll give you this much and no more. He gave everything. And to that degree, we are to love one another. And then in verse 14, we find the requirement, the prerequisite for our friendship with Jesus Christ. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You are my friends if you obey this commandment. Therefore, this tells us that the mark of a Christian is love for one another. Christians are not known for special rites or rituals or traditions. We don't have special attire, special clothing. You go to Israel and you'll notice on the East Coast, even in Santa Monica area, who are Orthodox Jews, just by their attire, the way they dress, uh, the length of their hair, uh, their dietary restrictions. You could tell right away what religion or what faith they uh, hold to. But Christians, we hold to none of these things. One thing that sets Christians apart from anyone else in the whole world is this commandment, that we love fellow Christians. This is how we glorify Christ. This is how we manifest Christ's love for us and the beauty and the loveliness and the holiness of Christ in this world. 
by loving one another. This is therefore a litmus test of whether we are truly friends of Christ. How do we know if we are friends with Christ? What if Christ will say in Matthew 7.21, Never have I known you. You are not my friend. Right? You know me. You know my name. You know my dad's name is Joseph. My mom's name is Mary. You know where I was born. You know all these things about me as Nicole shared. You know about me that I died and rose in, the, rose in three days. But I don't know you. We're not friends. We don't have a relationship. How do we know on this side of eternity whether we are friends of Christ or not? We look for this in our lives. Do we love Christians? Do we love the church? Do we love fellowship? Do we care for one another's souls? 1 John 3.23 This is His commandment. We believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another. 1 John 4.7 Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who has been born of God knows God has this love. 1 John 4.21 Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Therefore, the singular, the ultimate, I mean, I, well, what adjectives can I use here, right? The defining mark of a Christian. The first fruit that a Christian bears is love for, love for the church, love for Christians, before anything else. Right, so someone professes faith in Christ, the first thing that God will produce in that person's life is love for Christians. This is the internal commitment that exists in all true Christians. And we kind of closed our time two weeks ago with an application derived from this, that we all know this command. What Christian here doesn't know, beloved, we sing that song, right? First John 4, 7, 8, we clap three times after that, right? We know this song, we sing it, we know we have to love one another, but it is so difficult to love one another, is it not? I mean, that's where the struggle is. That's the fight. That's the battle of the Christian, Christian of faith. To fight to love one another. And who, what are we fighting? The reason it is so difficult to love one another is because of the sin of selfishness. It's the sin of self-centeredness. It is being self-focused. It is idolatry at the highest order that we love ourselves. We, we struggle and we fail to love God. Why? Because we love ourselves. And we struggle and we fail to love one another. Why? Because we love ourselves. That's why when Christ said, follow me, He said, you must deny yourself. Not meaning deny who you are, deny your identity, deny ownership of yourself. Take up the cross. You're a dead man walking. You are going to the cross. You're dead and you're following Him every day. That is the fight that we fight as Christians. And when Christians, some Christians, they, they sometimes give in to sin, give in to temptation, and they just kind of stray away for a while. What did they fall into? They have fallen into the sin of self-love. You can see it in their eyes, right? You can see it in their faces, their countenance, their conversations, their attitudes, their lifestyle. You look at their checkbook and you know, you know, what's going on. You look at their amount of hours on the internet or amount of hours spent on TV or videos or, or games or, or, or sports or television. You, you, they're, they're, they've stopped fighting this fight and what have they given themselves to? Selfishness. Right, self-love. I'm gonna, 
you know, live for myself now. I'm going to live for my own pleasures, my own desires, my own dreams, hopes, and aspirations. And they've given up. Christians are not perfect, but our direction is different. Our direction is away from self. We don't want to talk about ourselves. We don't want to glorify ourselves. We don't want to raise our reputation, make a name for ourselves. No, we want to make ourselves lowly. We want to be, become less. And we want Christ to become greater. And our direction is towards Christ. That is the fight that we're fighting. And I know that uh, it was challenging to my heart as to many of you just through email and the discussion. I've heard from so many how you know, this was it. This is a challenge. Selfishness. One brother told me you know, after your sermon I realized you know, I don't really love the church. And I don't really even love my family. In fact, I just kind of discovered I don't really love anybody. Right? And that I've just really begun to fight against the sin of selfishness. And I said, I hear you, brother. You know, I wake up every morning as a selfish man. Right? And my default, my you know, James Shin at its natural state is selfishness. And, you know, it's, it's even my children, my, 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 my wife, my family members, I struggle to love, let alone the church. And it's because of the sin of selfishness. Let's fight on and let's press on. And I've heard from many of you that you're, you're striving and fighting to love one another as Christ loved us. Well, verse 15, the privilege of our friendship with Jesus Christ. The privilege of our friendship with Jesus Christ. Christ says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Up to this point, our Lord, well, really actually up to John 13, um, Christ and His disciples had a very formal relationship, a very defined, formal relationship. I mean, this uh, first century, ancient Near East, disciple, uh, uh, Matetes and Curios, Lord relationship was clearly defined, and it was a very a superior to a, a somewhat of an inferior relationship. They used these titles to address Christ. They said in Mark 9:38, "Teacher," said John. Mark 13:1, disciples said, "Look, teacher," or they called Jesus Master, Epistates. Luke 5:5, 5, 5, 8:45, 9:49, they called him. Master, their probably favorite term to address Christ was Lord. I mean, numerous times throughout the Gospels, Peter, John, uh, Jude, they all address Christ as Lord. And here, Christ transforms His relationship with the disciples. And He says, I no longer call you servants. In fact, He demonstrated that in John 13 by washing their feet. I am not, I don't, view you as my slaves, as my disciples, as my followers. I view you as my friends. Now, before we go on here, that's what Christ addresses us. But no disciple ever called Jesus friend after that. Jesus, He condescends, He, he, condescends, he lowers Himself 
to the disciples and calls us friends. But the disciples never turn around and say, Great, friend. How you doing, Jesus? Right, let's hang out. They never presumptuously uh, approached Christ in this kind of cheesy kind of familiarity and approached Him as a friend. In fact, all the apostles, disciples, still call themselves servants, still call themselves disciples, still call themselves slaves of Christ. And I think that's very important that we don't presume upon Christ in this way. Um, you know, Professor Pettigrew, the senior professor of New Testament theology, or senior professor of theology at the Master Seminary, I've had four classes with him, traveled through Israel. Him and I somehow just developed a real good relationship. And after I graduated, we're talking, and he said, you know, James, stop calling me Professor Pettigrew. Call me Larry. Get out of here. I can't call you Larry. What are you talking about? He says, no, it's, you know, it's uncomfortable. Like we talk, you know, often. Just call me Larry. I said, I can't. <laughs> I just, that is not right. And uh, I thought about Professor Larry. <laughs> that doesn't work either, you know. You know, Pastor John, Pastor James works. But Professor Larry, it sounds awkward. To this day, when I see him, I still call him Professor Pettigrew. Right? Just because of the respect and the honor and just the, the love I have for that man, I cannot, I dare not, I want, I do not want to um, address him in that way. Well, same with Christ. Well, but Christ calls disciples and calls us his friends. And then he says, uh, I'm not just calling you friends, I'm going to treat you as my friends. Because a servant does not know what his master is doing, but friends know, and therefore I will reveal to you, make known to you what the Father has told me. Friends of Jesus, know, they know divine truth. A slave could never be a friend of a master because in the Greco-Roman culture, slaves were reduced to a tool, an instrument. It's the instrument of manual labor. Uh, a master would tell his slave his goals and desires, would just tell him what to do, and slaves would execute those orders, and that was it. And they had this business relationship, a clearly defined formal relationship, but they didn't share life. They didn't have a personal, intimate relationship. We see a parallel today in the modern slavery system in America, we're not talking about the education system. Right? We're not talking about you know, accountants or something. Or we're talking about the armed forces. Right? Modern day slavery. You sign up to be an indentured servant for the U.S. Army, Marine, Air Force, or the Navy. Right, Ray? Then you're an indentured servant. They say jump. You say how high. Right? If your colonel comes to you and says, I want you to hike to this hill, sleep in tents, and then... And, 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 Go to this line and attack this uh, camp. You don't say, why are we doing this? Right? What's your reasoning behind this? And what's the purpose of all of this? Right? What will happen to you? Would the colonel say, okay, let me explain to you, right? Why the big scheme, why the commander-in-chief told us this and explain to you our hearts, our reasoning, our philosophy behind all these things. They will, you know, put you in jail, right? They'll 
You uh, court martial you. You don't question. You don't um, your commander's orders. You don't have that kind of intimate relationship. The commander says jump. You say how high. The commander says swim. You just jump in the water. The commander says run. You run. And that was what was going on in the ancient Greco-Roman culture. Uh, the master would tell the slave, and that was it. No, no intimate information passed on. But Christ says, no, you are my friends. Therefore, I will share with you, right, um, divine truth. And that's what friends do, right? Like what separates, like in our understanding, like who is a friend, who is an acquaintance? Acquaintance is someone you meet once in a while, you don't know too well. But a friend is someone that shares their heart with you. Right? Shares a bit of their soul, a bit of who they are. They open themselves up and they give you a part of just their, their, their core beliefs or core understandings or, or core values. That's what friends do. That's what mark friendships, one of the key, key tenets of friendships. And so, um, you know, what do your friends share? Right? You know, you guys, friends get together and, you know, your friends tell you, oh, I like that guy, you know, or I think, you know, she's, you know, whatever, right? Or, you know, this stock is really good, or this is my fantasy basketball league roster and you should, you know, pick these guys as well. Well, is that what Christ did? Did Christ show his friendship to disciples by sharing with them just, just these temporal things? No. He revealed to them what he had heard directly from the Father. He revealed to them what he had heard directly from the Father. Verse 15, that word made known, um, it's the Greek word norizo, from where we get the word gnostic, and it means knowledge. Um, Heretical Gnosticism, false teaching is, there is this higher knowledge that some men received apart from the Bible. This is biblical Gnosticism. Christ made known to his friends the knowledge, information that he heard directly from the Father himself. And he shares this to all his friends. What is this divine truth? There are many things in the New Testament that Christ shares with his friends that reveal that reveal to us what God told Christ. But in verse 16, we find um, maybe the central, uh, the urgent message that God the Father shared with Christ. And the divine truth is this. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Christ says, you're my friends. Let me share with you something Right? No ritzo. This is something that's made known to you. You don't know it apart from me telling you. It is a mystery. It is hidden. It has, up to this point, remained undisclosed. I'm going to share a secret with you that you had previously un- did, did not know. And the truth is, you did not choose me. But I chose you. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Incredible. Right? Christ teaches us that He was the one who chose us, chose them, not us. 
Um, this is the clear teaching of the Bible that God has sovereignly chosen those who would be saved. Going on a few verses to verse 19. Um, I chose you out of this world. Mark 13:20. If the Lord had cut had not cut short these days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom He has chosen, He has shortened them. Colossians 3:12. Therefore, so Paul calls believers God's chosen people. Some people have argued this is not talking about salvation. It's talking about apostleship. Discipleship. So Christ is saying, you didn't choose me. I chose you to be my disciples. Uh, But that's a different word. That's the other word that Christ uses after that phrase. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. The The word appointed is tithemi, and it means ordained. It means to appoint for special service. That's apostleship. It means to send for a special reason. And this verb was used for discipleship, for apostleship. First uh, Timothy 1.12 I thank Christ our Lord who has given me strength that He considered me faithful, appointing me to His service. 1 Timothy 2.7 For this purpose I was appointed as a herald of the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.11 And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. In fact, even elders of the church. Acts 20.28 The Holy Spirit has made you, has appointed you overseers. So Christ is saying, that Christ chose these men for salvation and for ministry. Salvation and for ministry. Chosen to be saved and chosen for <clears throat> ministry. It's incredible. Verse 16. This divine truth that God chose us and we did not choose Him is confirmed repeatedly and consistently throughout the New Testament. Uh, listen to these verses. Second Thessalonians 2.13 We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved. When? When did God choose? From the beginning, God chose you. Why did God choose you? To be saved through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 2, you have been chosen. 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen people. Important for us to highlight that this is an unconditional election. Unconditional, unwarranted, undeserved election. God didn't choose us, and I'll talk about this more a little later, but God didn't choose us because of anything in us but because of His love, His will, and His mercy. 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul had just said in the previous book that he was the worst of all sinners. Right? So if he was chosen, it couldn't have been anything in Paul, because everybody is more righteous than Paul. 
So it's not a conditional election. God is not responding to any remnants of righteousness or an island of righteousness or any choosing on our part. In fact, Paul said, He saved us and called us not because of our works. It's so explicitly clear. But because of His own purpose and grace. Titus 3.5, he tells Titus, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. No. But because of His own mercy, of His own grace. Again, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That's astonishing. Now, we've got to wonder, is this revisionist history? Is Christ um, like changing history and changing the facts of what actually occurred? You know, my wife and I, we do this, we joke around back and forth, who chose who, right? So in my memory, she chose me, right? You know, I was following Christ and, you know, trying to be a man of God and she was just chasing after me and she wanted me. That's how I remember it, right? But her memory is, you know, she was chasing after Christ and I chased her down. That's her memory. Well, we'll know in heaven, I guess we'll never know on earth, but we joke back and forth, right? Is that what Christ is doing here? Are the disciples saying, no, Jesus, we chose you, Right? I think your memory is just kind of, you had a senior moment here, right? Um, remember Jesus, when you saw me by the Sea of Galilee, and you said, follow me? Lord, I've been following you for months, right? Through John the Baptist, he pointed you out, and I've been following you, hearing your teachings, so you noticed me for the first time that day, but I chose you months before you noticed me, right? Christ didn't go up to a stranger and say, Follow me. And like Peter's like, who are you? I don't know who you are. I'm not going to follow you. No, Peter said, I've been following you for months. John, same thing. All the disciples agreed, Lord, we were following you for months, months. You didn't notice us. We chose you. And because we chose you, we were there and you responded to us. Lord, that's what happened. From the human perspective, from human experience, that is our perception. That is correct. If we were not friends of Christ, that's all we would know. Because this was not made known to us. Right? We wouldn't and couldn't know anything else. Because this divine truth is revealed to Christ's friends. But Jesus here is confiding right, His truth to us. He's entrusting to us. He's disclosing something that only his friends can know. And he's giving us the knowledge of the Father's perspective. Yes, yes, that's what you think. But let me tell you something. This is what the Father told me. I heard it directly from him. And he, he told me, and this is true, from God's perspective, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Not only that, not only did you not choose me, you cannot choose me apart from me choosing you. It is an impossibility. John 6.44, Christ said, No one can come to me, no one, unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's an impossibility. 
Last summer, I went on the Expositors Institute, a one-week study with Pastor MacArthur, studying about preaching. During that time, we received a letter from Bible Broadcasting Network, Nationwide Broadcasting Network. Um, it's pr- prominently on the East Coast and the Midwest. They wrote a letter saying they've dropped John MacArthur and Grace to You from their radio uh, um, programs, a radio dial. Now, why did they drop Pastor MacArthur and Grace to You uh, program from their roster? Was it for false teaching? Was it some sin in MacArthur? Was it pride or arrogance in Grace to You? They wrote that he was removed from their uh, radio station for preaching the doctrine of election. That is the reason. They called it election slash hyper-Calvinism. And so to Arminians, anything outside of Arminianism is hyper-Calvinism. Right? And it, they claimed that it brought much confusion to their listeners. The network asserted that there is no human answer to the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. They claimed that both are clear biblical teachings beyond human comprehension. And so, for every verse that says God chose, there is a verse that says, whosoever will may come. Therefore, both are scripturally true. Now, I've got to talk about this a little bit. They're saying, the Bible says clearly, whosoever will may come. There's an invitation given to the world. Right? Therefore, it is not God's choice. Man has a choice. Anything apart from that is false teaching. What they fail to understand right, is that a command or an invitation of God does not presume or signify an ability on our, on our part to respond. Right? When God invites us to come, when God commands us to choose, it does not mean we have the ability to choose. Let me defend that. First of all, whosoever wills may come. Yes, that the Bible says that. But the conclusion of the Bible is unwaveringly clear that no one wills to come to God. No one wills to come to God. Romans 3.11 there is no one righteous, not even one. No one seeks God. So if God left it up, if God gave free choice to man and says, whoever wants to come, come to Christ, be saved. Romans 3, no one will be saved. No one will go to heaven. Right? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks God. Romans 7.14, everyone is a slave of sin. Ephesians 2.1, everyone is dead in our transgressions and our sins. Our wills are captive to selfishness, to inordinate love of self over God. If it was left to us, we would not choose God. It says clearly in Romans 3, not only that, we believe that the opposite of, is true. Right? That the opposite is true. Arminians say that the presence of such commands proves that we have the ability to obey. We, we believe that the presence of such commandments 
uh, proves the exact opposite. Let me illustrate this. Um, there are two completely opposite, competing, contrary approaches to God. Two approaches to God. The first approach is what I call the rich young ruler approach. God gives these commands. And let's use the rich young ruler. He says, I obeyed them all. Thank you for these commands. You know, it was a little tough, a little difficult, but I'm a man of determination, decision, and discipline. I set my mind to it. I accomplished things. I obeyed all your commands. I don't lack anything. Right? Whatever commands you give me, because I love you, I will obey all of it. It's a works-based approach. The second approach is what I call the tax collector approach. Luke 18. Haven't obeyed and can't obey. He's at the last row of the synagogue. Can't even lift his head and look at the front. He is weeping because of his inability to obey God's commands. You know, sins number more than the number of hairs that are on his head. Therefore, he beats his chest and all he can say is, Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner. Task collector's approach is, I haven't obeyed, I can't obey. All your commands are impossible. God, to me, to man, it is impossible. For me to be righteous, I can't attain it. You have to give it to me as a gift. You have to uh, impute it to me uh, as a gift, free gift that I gain solely by faith. So righteousness is not something that we gain or attain. We believe it is a free gift, an undeserved gift, a foreign commodity given to us freely by Christ through our faith in Him. And our approach is the task collector's approach. We believe that it is impossible for man to obey you know, any command of God apart from Christ. It is impossible for us. In fact, and I hope you guys understand this, the imposition of commands that are beyond our ability is God's way of bringing us to recognize our need of Him. God gives us His commands, impossible commands, so that it will expose our utter bankruptcy, our utter inability to obey these commands. And if we respond with a humble heart and we say, God, I'm a sinner. The law is a schoolmaster, tutor, leading us to grace. If we respond with pride and saying, I'm righteous, I obey your word, obey your commands, not a problem, then we are cast aside. If we respond in humility, the law becomes our helper. It becomes our tutor, leading us to the cross. This is how Luther puts it, put it. Reason thinks that a man is mocked by an impossible commandment, whereas I maintain that by this means, Man is admonished and awakened to see his own inability and powerlessness. Just in case, all of this went right over your heads, right over your head. Let me give you one more illustration. Probably one of the best illustrations that I use to explain this. It's the example of Lazarus in John 11. 
Right? Lazarus is dead for four days. He's buried. He's bound up in, uh, in a burial clothes. And uh, Christ comes and he says, Lazarus, come out. Now, it is impossible for a dead man to obey. Why is that? Because he can't hear the command. Like, what are you, he's not hard of hearing. He's dead. Right? So Christ says, Lazarus, come out. It's ludicrous. Jesus, he's a dead man. Like, he can't obey you because he can't understand what you're saying. Why? Because he can't hear you. Why? Because he's dead. He's held captive. He's a slave to death. But what happens? Lazarus does indeed rise and come out. And in doing so, all glory goes to God. Right? Because without God's power, Lazarus would be helpless. They say a command, a command presumes the ability to obey. Well, Christ commanded Lazarus. Was he saying, Lazarus, he's not really dead. He's just deep in sleep. That guy, you know, once he goes down, you know, has a big meal, you know, he's almost dead. But he can't obey me. He can't hear me. He has the ability to obey me. Is that what Christ is saying? No, Christ saying, Lazarus, come out. He knows with man it's impossible because he's dead. But by his command, he performs him performs a miracle of life and Lazarus does indeed come out. That's what Christ is saying here in verse 16. You did not choose me. You were dead. You, know, you, you could not choose me. But I chose you. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And then we find in verse 16b the product of our friendship with Jesus Christ the product, election, God's choosing is always to fruitfulness. A fruitless Christian does not exist. And what is this fruit right, that Christ commands them to, to bear? So most commentators think it's salvation of lo- the lost. Some think it's just Christian maturity or establishing the church in the book of Acts. CLI guys, we've been studying through hermeneutics and exegesis for the past you know, two months. The first rule of interpretation is context, right? Immediate context. What is the fruit that Christ is pointing to? It's the fruit of love for fellow Christians. Love for one another, right? God chooses us, right, to bear fruit. And what is that fruit? The fruit of loving fellow Believers, this is the first fruit that is born, that is uh, produced in a Christian life, Christian's life. And I've seen this. I had a guy had a difficult time coming to church because of because of NFL football. I was like, he been coming to church for years, and he stopped coming for a while. Where have you been? Oh man, I can't wake up, and it's football season, and you know, Patriots are making a run, and. And I'm like, okay, all right, watch football, right? Another gal, you know, every Sunday it was like a struggle. She had to like fight to come to church. But both of them, the guy, he comes early now. Right? He loves coming to church. He loves serving. He has a joy of ministry. The sister says, it's gone. That struggle, coming to church, it's like, it's like coming down double black diamonds, like sliding down, like easy coming to church. Why? 
Because the first fruit of a Christian, right, of election, is love for fellow believers. That is why 1 Corinthians 13, 1-8, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love. And the context here is the church. It's not vertical love. It's not love for God. It's really, it's, trust me, it's love for fellow believers. But have not love for other Christians, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that I could remove mountains, but if I don't love the church, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy nor boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. I mean, essentially it is selfless, right? It is not irritable. It is not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Right? Love for one another. Love believes all things. We believe one another. Love hopes all things. We hope the best for one another. We endure all things for one another. Love never ends. Right. The fruit that God desires for, for us to verify our true faith that we're friends of Christ is love for one another. Well, I'm sure that I've uh, muddied up the waters for you a little bit for some of you. So, you came on a perfect Sunday. Because during FOF, Mr. Eugene Kim is teaching on unconditional election. So if you have questions, don't ask me. Go and ask him. Sit in that class. You're more than welcome. And he will give you a thorough overview of the doctrine of unconditional election. And answer all of your questions uh, from the scriptures. Um, someone asked me a few weeks ago, why is this doctrine so important to you? Right, why is it? So I wrote down seven reasons why this doctrine is so important to me. We'll close with this. First of all, this doctrine glorifies God. Glorifies God. That's what I want to do. That's what you want to do. This teaching tells the world that salvation is all God's work. That He chose us. That He loved us. He died on behalf of our sins. He is the one who rose from the grave. He is the one who justifies. He is the one who sanctifies. And He is the one who will glorify. God did it all. He is the author and perfecter. He is the one who chose. We didn't choose Him. All glory, all credit, all honor goes to Christ alone. And I love that. I love that God is zealous for His own glory. That He will not allow His glory to be robbed by man. Right? I don't want to be part of a religion where any glory goes to man, right? any human being, any institution, or any church. The Bible tells us this doctrine is important because this doctrine ensures that all glory goes to Him. Second reason why this doctrine is so important to me, it is the one potent cure for my pride. One efficacious, effectual cure for my pride. I've been fighting my pride all my life. And I've made headway because of this doctrine. This doctrine helped me deal a real severe blow to my pride. 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29 
God chose what is foolish to shame the strong. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. Uh, Foolish to shame the wise. Weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low, despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This doctrine takes away all my boast. Any confidence, any pride, any boast that I have as a Christian takes it away because all glory goes to God. You know, the Arminians um, talk about prevenient grace and John Wesley popularized this teaching. My wife is reading a a biography of George Whitfield. She was telling me last night, like 2 in the morning, how George Whitfield was all discouraged. He was so burdened. Why? Because... John Wesley was teaching error and propagating Arminian theology and this idea of prevenient grace. So he was walking from, I believe, Virginia down to Georgia. And to get there, he had to go on a boat. But he was so just burdened in his heart and anxious. He sent a ship to, on the coast and he walked through the wilderness with some scouts to just keep his mind off of this burden on this false Erroneous teaching on prevenient grace. What is prevenient grace? Arminius say that God has given this grace enabling all sinners to either accept or reject the free offer of the gospel. So sin entered the world and corrupted all men, uh, enslaving them to sin. But through the cross, God gave this prevenient grace to everyone. And so now through the cross... Everybody has a chance and they have the freedom to choose Christ or reject Christ. Right? And so when someone becomes a Christian, it is still by grace. Because if God didn't provide this prevenient grace, no one would be saved. So it is still salvation by grace. Well, well let's think this through. right? Um, let's say all of us are in the tomb with Lazarus. We're all dead with him. And God give us, gives all of us, that's what they say, God gives everyone prevenient grace. All of us receive prevenient grace. And let's say, this side of the room, Christ has come out, we go out of the tomb, and we're with Christ. And this side of the room, you guys, you, know, you see prevenient grace, you guys heard the command, but you chose not to obey Him. So if we're outside the tomb, we'll look at DP and we'll say, man, What's wrong with him? He re- I received prevenient grace. He received prevenient grace. Man, I'm better than him. Because I obeyed Christ. Man, Peter, right, with a sister. Okay, you know, Nicole, right, or <laughs> Savannah. Man, we always the same amount of grace. But we were wiser. We were more righteous. We had more faith. We were somewhat better than them because we all received prevenient grace. But, but for us to be saved, that means we're better which feeds our pride. No, that's not what happened. Not at all. We're all in the tomb. We're dead in trespass. And God saved us. Not because we're more righteous than anyone. We're all equally sinful. But God saved us according to His mercy, compassion, because of His love. So when we're outside the tomb with Christ, we can't have any kind of pride over against non-believers. Because... We don't deserve any of this. All glory goes to God. 
and it deals a severe blow to our pride. Third reason why this doctrine is so important encourages believers to pursue holiness with confidence. Encourages believers to pursue holiness with confidence. The greatest need of my life, that's my prayer, I don't know, I shared that somewhere, the pastor's corner of my prayer request, the greatest struggle, greatest need of my life is holiness. That's the most difficult thing. For my experience, holiness is not cumulative. Right? It's not every day I become more and more holy so like I can kind of coast because I have 15 years of Christian holiness built up with inside of me and I'm doing well. For me, every day I fight for holiness. Like yesterday's home runs don't win today's ball game. Same thing. Like yesterday we won 8-1. to one. I could lose 4-3 to three today. Right? Same, that kind of idea. So holiness is discouraging because we're such foreigners, strangers to holiness. But this doctrine of election gives me and gives you hope and encourages us to fight for holiness because the Bible says, Romans 8.29, that the elect of God are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. This is secured. God promises us we'll be holy like His Son. Ephesians 1.4, His choice of us in eternity past was that we should be holy and blameless. 1 Peter 2.9, our election is for the purpose of forming us into a holy nation. John 15.16, Christ's choice of us is for, fruit, is for fruitfulness. Philippians 1.6, you began the good work, work, will finish it. Philippians 2.12, God will finish the work that He began in us. Third reason why this is so important to me. The fourth reason is it spurs me and enables me to persevere in evangelism and prayer. Right? I, just, I can just focus on what He's called me to do because God has decreed it. God has decreed the means of saving the lost. It is through our prayers and through our sacrifice, our suffering and our evangelism. God has decreed it. God has decreed the, the plan and the means. And the means is through prayer and evangelism. Now some might say, well if God is sovereign, why even try? You know, why not just relax? Isn't that what Calvinism produces? Complacency, laxity, right? heartlessness. But see, Christ understood God's sovereignty. What did Christ do? He suffered and died. Apostle Paul believed in God's sovereignty. What did he do? He evangelized, he prayed, he suffered for the gospel. A right understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation causes us to pray all the more, causes us to evangelize all the more because we know it's not in vain. Right? It's, it's, let's say God, there was free choice, our meanings are right, then we could, do, we could minister our whole lives and have nothing to show for it. Right? At the end of our lives, nothing. Right. So we know this. Because of this, we kind of protect ourselves, right? Maybe you do this at work, at school. There's no guarantee for an A. Right? There's no guarantee of a raise or promotion or that you'll be successful. So you kind of protect yourself and kind of you live like a timid soul. Self-protection. What well, not is Calvinist because we didn't believe God is sovereign. God has decreed it. God has ordained it. This is the means by which we will save. And... And if we do this, our work, our labor is not in vain. Fifth reason, this enables me to preach the gospel without fear and compromise. 
enables me to preach the gospel and not worry about offending anyone and causing someone to lose their salvation. Oh no, man, I shouldn't have said that. Because I was so strong that brother over there lost his salvation. Or because I was so strong I offended this non-believer. And because of what I said, because I have so much power to affect someone's will, that he is lost forever and he is in hell because of James Chan. So if that's true, then I can't preach. Right? I have to seek to know everyone's felt needs and seek to please people and cater to people's desires. But if the Bible is true, that they're already elect, the elect are saved by the gospel, then I can just focus on one thing, being faithful to the gospel. Right? That as I preach the gospel, the whole counsel of God, God will save His people. Right? People that hate Christ, they'll hear the gospel, they'll hate Him all the more. I can't do anything about that. I'm not God. I'm a sinner, saved by grace. My only ability is to faithfully proclaim the message of the Bible. Sixthly, it allows me to taste the sweetness of Christ and His gospel. It makes the gospel sweeter. My brother came up to me after that two Sundays ago and said, Man, it's so sweet. We taste and see. Doctrine of unconditional election because it gives all glory to Christ. Because it exalts Him as the sole reason for our salvation. Um, makes it sweeter. 17th century article, the Church of England said this doctrine of election is a doctrine full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort. And the final reason why I love this doctrine, why it's so important to me, it allows me to love fellow Christians. Right? It allows me to bear this, obey this most important command, love one another. Right? If um, God is not sovereign in salvation, if God is it's not unconditional election, then I must love the lost more than believers. Right? I must be in the world preaching the gospel and, uh, you know, if, if people say to me, oh, James, love me. And uh, my response is, love you? Man, don't be so selfish. Right? You're already in heaven. Right? I'll love you in heaven. Right? Just hold on. You know, don't be so selfish. We have more important work ahead of us. Saving the world. Making disciples. Evangelizing the lost. That's more important than loving you. You're already forgiven of sins. You're going to heaven. Relax. Right? If you're overlooked, neglected, you know, you'll get yours in heaven. Let's love the world. Right? We'll prioritize missions. That's why in so many churches, Christians are overlooked. People come to Cornerstone because they want to be fed. Well, why come you don't get fed at your church? Well, pastor, at our church, I go and they're preaching to my non-Christian friends that come. Right? People that aren't even there. I'm here as a Christian learning to God. I want to learn God's Word. I want to be ministered to. And they're busy loving the world. And no one's loving me. No one's shepherding my soul. No one's caring for me. This doctrine allows me, enables me to obey Christ's first command to love one another, which causes us to be a light to this world. By this, the world would know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Non-Christians will see. See how they love one another. And they'll be attracted to Christians because of our love for one another and will seek to become part of the family. 
It will enable Jonah and Dale to go to the Czech Republic and give themselves for God's work. Why? Because they know we love them. Right? Think about it. If we didn't love them, right? right? We were concerned about the lost here. Okay, you guys go. Okay, have a good time. We're busy too. It would hinder them from freely giving themselves wholly for the work of evangelism and ministry there. But because they know we have a, there's a church that's praying for them, serving them, caring for them, loving them, they can throw themselves for God's work because of the love that they have here at the church. Pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we do thank you for considering us your friends. It is a title, label that we don't deserve, but it is an honor to be considered your friend. And we thank you for confiding in us, telling us what you heard, what you heard directly from the Father, that we did not choose you, that our salvation, forgiveness of our sins, eternal life in heaven, is not the result of anything that we have done. Thank you for telling us that you chose us, that you did it all, and that your choosing us is shown by our love for one another, that our love for fellow Christians is proof, the sign that we are indeed your friends. Lord, we thank you for this free gift of salvation, that it's not by works. For if it was by works, we would be still in our sins. Thank you. It indeed causes us to cherish you more, love you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.